Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit Coyle. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise, where we've had several phenomenal ports of call along the way, including normal pregnancy physiology, heart failure, coronary disease, arrhythmia, pulmonary hypertension, aortic disorders, hypertensive disorders, multidisciplinary critical care, ACHD, and pregnancy, as well as patient perspectives from women heart champions. Well, we're not done yet. In today's very special stop, we get to learn from a leader in cardio obstetrics, someone who has been working hard to improve the lives of women who have or are at risk for heart disease way before there was even a hashtag cardio obstetrics on cardio Twitter, Dr. Yuri Alkayam. In this discussion, Dr. Alkayam teaches us about the valvular heart disease considerations in preconception counseling and management throughout the course of pregnancy and thereafter. We will follow up this discussion with two related episodes, one on the interventional and structural cardiovascular considerations and approaches in pregnancy with Dr. Michael Luna from UT Southwestern and anticoagulation during pregnancy, including for mechanical heart valves with Dr. Katie Berlacher from the University of Pittsburgh. Remember everyone, CardiNerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Relevant speaker disclosures are available in the notes. If you find this show helpful, please do help others find us by reading and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app. And now, let's get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Sonia, your host for today's episode of our Cardio Nerds Cardioobstetrics series. Dan, Amit, and I are super excited to be hosting today's episode on valvular heart disease in pregnancy. We are thrilled to have with us today Dr. Lori Femnu and Dr. Yuri Elkayam. I am particularly excited about this episode for two reasons. One, pregnant patients with existing valvular disease have been some of our most challenging cases to manage on the cardiology consult service, often requiring rapid decision-making, multidisciplinary teamwork, and an ability to interpret complex hemodynamics. Caring for these patients is always an incredible learning experience for me, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. And two, Dr. Lori Femnu is actually one of my co-fellows at UT Southwestern and a very close friend. I'm thrilled to have her with us. Lori is a second-year cardiology fellow who will be pursuing interventional cardiology, and she has an interest in cardiobstetrics as well. Fun fact, Lori actually gave a wonderful Grand Rounds talk on the management of valvular heart disease in pregnancy just a few months ago. So I can't wait to learn more from you today, Lori. Thank you, Sonia. You're way too kind. Hi, Dan and Amit. It is a pleasure to meet you both virtually. I've been listening to you guys for months. And Dr. Elkayim, we're very happy to have you here today. And I'm very excited for this episode as well. You're, you're very welcome, Lori. This is a real treat on our part as well to meet you and to learn from your expertise is going to be great in addition to Dr. Al-Kayim. So welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. So in preparation for this episode, I had asked Lori who might be a good featured expert for our discussion today. And without hesitation, she said Dr. Yuri Al-Kayim. Dr. Al-Kayim is an internationally known expert in heart failure and heart disease and pregnancy and an absolute legend in the field of cardio B. It is really an honor to have him with us. I couldn't agree more with you, Sonia. Dr. Elkayim did his medical training in Austria and Israel before completing cardiology fellowships at Albert Einstein College of Medicine for his clinical fellowship and Cedar sinai Medical Center for his research fellowship. He is currently a dual professor of medicine and OB-GYN at the University of Southern California. He's a former chief of cardiology at USC University Hospital and director of the USC Heart Failure Program. He has been involved in more than 100 self-initiated NIH and industry-funded research projects and has authored over 200 peer-reviewed articles and 80 book chapters. Welcome to Cardio Nerds, Dr. Elkayim. Thank you very much. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here, talk about valvular heart disease in pregnancy. We have been interested in that for a long, long time. So I'm happy to be here, and hopefully we will learn uh, a great deal. 
Thank you, Dr. Alkayim. We are very excited. And, you know, on that line, we'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and career path. How did you get to where you are today? And what got you particularly interested in cardiobstetrics? That's actually an interesting story. You know, when I uh, finished medical school, just before my internship in Israel, I wanted to go to OB. And then in Israel, we had a rotating internship. And once I got to the CCU, I was very excited got involved in some research, and I decided to become a cardiologist. My best friend, Dr. Norbert Gleischer, who is the world-renowned expert on infertility today, went on to become an obstetrician. And when we finished our training, I finished my fellowship in New York and Albert Einstein, and he uh, finished his residency and became a faculty member at Mount Sinai. And he was interested in medical uh, problems in pregnancy. We decided to work on the book. And the book was Cardiac Problems in Pregnancy, published in 1982, believe it or not. I know I don't look that old, but I am. So after that, I moved to USC and I practiced at the county hospital in Los Angeles. That was the largest county hospital in the nation. And we had between 50 and 80 deliveries a day. So we had a clinic which was very, very busy. And, uh, you know, I've always been interested in answering questions, clinical questions. We always had a, an ongoing research in the, in the clinic. We've had uh, a large number of people who came to join us from different countries. At that time, you know, we didn't really see that as a subspecialty. I have always been interested in heart failure. You know, I used to be an interventional cardiologist. And this was sort of a hobby of mine over the years. But as I said, we have really uh, done a lot of research and tried to answer a lot of questions. Over the years, we have seen everything under the sun. So that's how everything started. That is a wonderful journey, Dr. Elkayem. As an expert in the field of cardiobstetrics and author of multiple book chapters on valvular heart disease in pregnancy, we would love to review some cases with you today. So the first, we're going to start in the cardiobstetrics clinic. Our first patient, Ms. M, was referred to us by her obstetrician after she was found to have a murmur on physical exam. Ms. M is a 36-year-old with no significant past medical history who presented initially to her OB clinic for preconception counseling. She had a normal childhood and participated in sports without any limitation. She is currently working in IT and lives a pretty sedentary lifestyle. She is overweight but otherwise no other medical problems. She wants to start a family, and because of her advanced maternal age, she went in for preconception counseling. Her vital signs were normal, and her excellent OB detected a loud murmur that was a systolic heart murmur, but could not characterize it any further. An echo was ordered, and she was referred to cardiology clinic. So Dr. Kayim, what are your initial thoughts about our asymptomatic patient with a loud systolic murmur? So the, the differential diagnosis here, there's a long list of differential diagnoses. And if I ask uh, most of residents and fellows today, they say, let's go an echo. But you know, I think in the clinic, you can, by physical examination, figure out what is the most likely etiology of this murmur. So, you know, first of all, I think it's important to know that many of pregnant women during the second and third trimester will have a murmur. It's about 70%. If you listen very carefully, the murmur is, is typical. It's about one to two over six. It's a mid-systolic murmur heard over the pulmonic area, usually radiating more to the left side of the neck compared to the right side for some reason. It's usually a relatively faint murmur, but every once in a while, this functional murmur can be more intense. It's very similar, by the way, to an ASD murmur, right? Because it is caused by an increased flow uh, across the pulmonic valve. I mean, it doesn't have the wide and fixed split of the second heart sound. So you have to listen very carefully. And in the ASD, usually secundum, going to see an incomplete right bundle branch block on the EKG. The next, you have to think about a uh, bicuspid aortic valve because this is the most common congenital heart disease. The murmur is more over the aortic area radiating to the neck. You can have a VSD. The VSD will be associated with a trill, 
pulmonic stenosis is not very common, but nevertheless, we see patients with pulmonic stenosis during pregnancy every once in a while. If it's valvular, then you're going to want to hear an early systolic click, and the click typically will decrease with inspiration, right? This is the only right-sided auscultatory phenomenon which will, which will decrease with inspiration. The mitral valve prolapse, you know, is supposed to be very, very common. I have to say that over the years, I haven't seen that many patients with mitral valve prolapse and more the patients that I see in the pregnancy clinic. But then you really want to uh, listen to the mid-systolic click. You know, the first heart sound during pregnancy is widely split. And I remember it, at the beginning of my career, I used to diagnose a lot of mitral valve prolapse based on auscultatory findings, thinking that this click that I heard, um, or this actually white split of the first heart sound was a click. And at that time, we also were excited about mitral valve prolapse because we just were sort of discovered. One more thing, uh, and we uh, miss a, a, a murmur for coarctation if you don't think about that. So if you have a patient who happens to have hypertension and a murmur, make sure you palpate the femoral pulses. The other thing is that you can have an AI murmur. It's very difficult to hear the diastolic component, but oftentimes you're going to hear systolic components. That also in differential diagnosis. Uh, a number of potential etiologies for a systolic murmur. So based on the, uh, the way you're describing it without any further description, it's difficult really to know what this murmur represents. But now we're going to have an echo. <laughs> we'll certainly develop our physical exam skills before whipping out the handheld echo. But with a, with a systolic murmur in pregnancy, perhaps we're thinking, is it physiologic? Is it a valvular problem? Is it a congenital defect? Let's say for the purposes of our discussion here, this is a valvular problem. Could you help us compare stenotic lesions with regurgitant lesions with regards to hemodynamics, tolerability, and risk in pregnancy? When it comes to regurgitant lesions compared to stenotic lesions, so, you know, I've said it, I'm guilty of that over the years. I have this slide saying that the regurgitant lesions are better tolerated than stenotic lesions, and that's, and that's correct. But this is really provided that we're talking about the patient with normal left ventricular function, right? The patient who is not symptomatic and the patient who does not have pulmonary hypertension. There is a registry that the ROPAC registry presented the patient with valvular heart disease compared regurgitant to stenotic lesion. But many of the patients over there had a history of heart failure before the pregnancy had all the indication for intervention before pregnancy, and they became pregnant. So this patient, not surprising, had a lot of complications. Not as much as stenosis, but nevertheless, 20% of them develop heart failure and hospitalization. So in the patient that really has a regurgitant lesion, mitral regurgitation, aortic regurgitation, and the patients otherwise you know, not candidate for intervention because of the decrease in systemic vascular resistance, you have decrease in afterload, decrease in preload, then obviously the unloading of the ventricle it makes it easier for, you know, for the heart to cope with the regurgitant lesion. So it is correct that if you have a patient with mitral regurgitation, moderate and even sort of touching severe, and the patient is not a candidate for surgery at this point of time. And I think an important message is that we do not do prophylactic surgery in a patient who does not meet criteria for surgery otherwise. A patient with a regurgitant lesion is going to tolerate the pregnancy well, provided that they are not candidate for surgery or meet the criteria or the risk predictors for event during pregnancy. That was really helpful. So to summarize, because of the chronic volume load in regurgitant lesions, patients are able to tolerate the increase in plasma volume to some degree. In contrast, with stenotic lesions, the increase in volume and cardiac output during pregnancy leads to rapidly increased filling pressures and clinical heart failure. That's correct. And so applying the same physiologic principles to left-side versus right-sided lesions, I'd imagine that a right-sided valvular lesion, specifically tricuspid regurgitation, is better tolerated than a left-sided valvular lesions. 
Is this the case, Dr. Al-Qaim? And if so, are there any exceptions to that rule? All right. So I think I think that this is not a very good uh, general rule. And the reason for that is tricuspid regurgitation is usually not a standalone lesion, right? Tricuspid regurgitation is going to be mainly caused by pulmonary hypertension in a patient that has heart failure or pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension. It will be associated with right ventricular dysfunction in a patient with systemic right ventricle. So obviously, tricuspid regurgitation is oftentimes associated with another problem, which is going to uh, be responsible for complication during pregnancy. Now, Epstein anomaly, for example, hemodynamically is tolerated quite well. In Epstein, the problems are arrhythmias, and if the patient has an ASD and left or right chant because of the more profound decrease in systemic vascular resistance compared to pulmonary vascular resistance, you may see a more right to left chant. So I think tricuspid regurgitation, I mean, very few women will have isolated tricuspid regurgitation. And if they do, it will be tolerated well during pregnancy. So it sounds like, you know, following a general rule that we have to follow in cardiology, we can't just get fixated on the, you know, valvular lesion. We really have to take the heart into, a, you know, as a whole and think about the associated findings that we would have as either drivers or consequences of said valvular lesions. And that would help us risk stratify our patients. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially for lesions where the secondary causes are more common than the primary causes, like potentially with MR and TR. In general, the modified World Health Organization classification of maternal pregnancy risk, class four conditions or conditions in which patients have a prohibitively high risk during pregnancy, thus pregnancy is contraindicated, includes severe symptomatic aortic stenosis and mitral stenosis. In contrast, isolated right-sided valvular lesions. And we just talked about how that's probably less common than, you know, from functional causes related to pulmonary hypertension and RV failure. But isolated right-sided valvular lesions and regurgitant lesions in the absence of severe heart failure are considered WHO class two or three lesions. And so, or anywhere from low to high risk for pregnancy-related complications, depending on the individual. Thank you. That was a very helpful review. Now let's look at Ms. M's echocardiogram. So she had her echo and it showed a bicuspic aortic valve and severe aortic stenosis with an aortic valve area of 0.93 centimeters square and a mean gradient of 45 millimeters of mercury. She also has mild aortic regurgitation. Ejection fraction is normal at 65% and her aortic root diameter is normal as well. During her clinic, she denies any symptoms that could be associated with a severely stenotic lesion, including chest pain, dyspnea exertion, syncope, or pre-syncope. Now, Dr. Akayam, knowing our patient has asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis before pregnancy, what would you recommend for her at this point? So if I may just go back to the previous comment about the WHO classification, I think it's critical. You know, the CARPREC-2, you're probably familiar with the CARPREC-2, and it was published last year again, and I wrote an editorial to the CARPREC-2. One of the most, I think, risky thing is to, for example, as we said, we have a right-sided, you know, valvular regurgitation, and we try to classify that. It can be risky because of the fact that one really has to understand the context, right, of this valvular lesion. And so I'm not fond of the WHO classification because of the fact that it may be the beginning. It may be the sort of, you know, you just start actually placing your patient somewhere. And then you really have to understand individually the problem that the patient has. Otherwise, you know, it, it can become uh, a tool which is not very useful. Now, going back to this patient. So this patient is asymptomatic. And patient with valvular disease maybe more the mitral, but also the aortic, have the tendency to reduce the activity according to their ability. So you're telling me that the patient is asymptomatic, we need to have more information. Is this a patient who is going to the gym or a patient who likes to hike on the weekend? Or this is a patient who actually has a sedentary lifestyle? If this is the case, then we need to provoke and see if the patient is really I call this asymptomatic with reduced exercise tolerance, which is an indication for an intervention. 
So the first thing really, I think, to get a very, very careful history, if you have a patient who is a super athlete, then you may not need to put a patient on the treadmill. But if not, then we need to have some more information about exercise testing. Remember that the gold standard treatment for aortic stenosis is a surgical replacement. So if you have a patient who meets the criteria, then you have the dilemma as to what you're doing and when you're doing it. And we'll talk about a valve a little bit later. So again, the important rules is no prophylactic intervention. We don't really want to do anything prophylactically. Yeah. And uh, so we do an exercise test. We want to do an echocardiogram because patients with a bicuspid aortic valve will have a aortopathy oftentimes, and you want to assess the diameter of the aorta. In patients with bicuspid valve, by the way, the dilatation is usually the ascending aorta. It's not the arch. So you don't really need to use MRI. I think echo will be good enough in the majority of the patient. But if you don't have a good echo, then you would like to have an MRI. So that will be the extent of the evaluation at this point of time. Very, very helpful and great pearls all around. So in the case that we had given you, our patient had symptoms and exercise intolerance, but let's just say our patient undergoes an exercise stress test and achieves a reasonable workload and remains asymptomatic with normal blood pressure response. Just she's totally killing it. Would you still recommend any preconception intervention or are you reassured by her normal exercise stress test? I think that at this point of time, I'm reassured. You know, the patient is always a high-risk pregnancy patient and needs to be followed very carefully by sort of a maternal fetal medicine specialist and a cardiologist. But at this point of time, as I said, if the patient does not meet criteria for intervention, I would not do an intervention, surgical or non-surgical, to allow the patient to become pregnant. I think Tisha is going to tolerate pregnancy quite well. Thank you, Dr. Lakayam. Thankfully, our patient passed the test and won't be needing an intervention. And as you mentioned earlier, we don't do things prophylactically. But say she did need an intervention, you know, in terms of valvular interventions for aortic stenosis prior to pregnancy in a woman of childbearing age. You know, we do have multiple different options. These may include a balloon valvuloplasty, valve replacement with a bioprosthetic or mechanical valve surgically, pulmonary valve autografting, the ROS procedure. Uh, some have even proposed a TAVR in women of childbearing age with consideration for a second intervention down the road. How do you approach this decision-making and how do you guide the patient in this uh, thought process? I mean, why wouldn't I, for example, recommend to do a valvuloplasty before the pregnancy? I mean, there are two reasons. One, it's not necessary. The other is that you always may have some complications. The other thing is that the valvuloplasty oftentimes has a sort of a temporary effect and you have a restenosis. So if you're going to do it before pregnancy, you know, in six months or so, you may actually have a stenotic valve again. So if you want to talk about the choice of intervention, let's talk about a patient who is pregnant and the patient is becoming symptomatic. And the patient is getting to the point that you really need to do an intervention. Then the question, what kind of an intervention you would do in a pregnant patient who has severe aortic stenosis? So I think the, the first choice is a valvuloplasty, balloon valvuloplasty. The aortic valve at this age is usually pliable and it's not really heavily calcified. So a valvuloplasty can be successful. If you're looking at the literature, the, the experience is anecdotal. And we just came out with my fourth edition of the book, which was published last uh, year. And I asked uh, one of our fellows to try to put together all the cases in the literature. And we have a table there with 12 patients. And so you can see that the procedure was successful hemodynamically and really without complication. The expected complication will be aortic regurgitation, mild to moderate. Uh, the fetal outcome was, was good. So I think that a valvuloplasty is a good, is a good way to go. You mentioned TAVR, and there have been a few cases in the literature where TAVR actually was performed in this patient. And I think we're going to see actually more of this happening. And the question is, is it really a good idea? 
I think hemodynamically, you can argue that the tiver is probably going to be better than a balloon valvuloplasty. I think hemodynamically, you're going to achieve better results. At the same time, both procedures are associated with radiation, right? And then to do tiver in a bicuspid valve, which is not really calcified, you know, you may have some, the results may be suboptimal because of the fact that you don't have the calcium to, to hold your valve. And the other thing is the risk of AV block and the need for pacemaker, which will be really undesirable in a patient at this age. And if you look and get the literature, there was one case that was actually described and the patient developed a left bundle branch block required a temporary pacemaker, luckily not a pacemaker. And in addition to that, you know, the durability of the valve is really unknown. Now, you can argue that if you're going to select a bioprosthetic valve for these patients where the durability is problematic too, you know, maybe you should start with a tower. But that's a concept that has not been tested, and I'm not sure about the difficulties of doing a valve replacement in the patients who had initially tower. So all of these things, you know, need to be taken into account. At this point of time, we would prefer to do a valvuloplasty in this patient during the pregnancy if she needs the... This is a big, big topic when it comes to the choice of valve. The majority of people would favor a bioprosthetic valve in a patient and the childbearing age or patients who are during pregnancy because of the complexity of intercoagulation of a mechanical valve in pregnancy. I think it's an important consideration, but other consideration will be the durability of the valve and the need to have at least one more operation, if not two, right? And this is associated with mobility and mortality. I think lifelong, you're not doing a patient a favor by giving her a bioprosthetic valve. I have always been in favor of mechanical valve because I think that you can provide a patient a safe and effective anticoagulation, but you need to be able to do that. And the anticoagulation in a mechanical prosthesis in pregnancy is complicated. I'm not saying that it's not. It's labor intense and you have to be able to provide that. So at the end of the day, the choice of valve is going to be determined by the patient who is very well educated because, you know, oftentimes you'll come to the patient and say, you know, you should have a bioprosthetic valve because of the anticoagulation and the patient is going to basically follow the advice. The advice should only be based on very detailed information to the patient of the up and down sides of either choice. And then the ability to provide good anticoagulation, because if you cannot do that, then a bioprosthetic valve is a must. And then if you have a patient who is likely or maybe is in atrial fibrillation, patient with mitral valve, that you're going to give the patient anticoagulation anyway, then you may want to actually select the mechanical valve. So that's when it comes to bioprosthetic versus mechanical. Now, Ross procedure in good hands is a very good choice. And I'm not saying it's not, although over the years, I've had some criticism of uh, replacing two valves instead of one valve, you know, in the aortic position. And we have seen a series of complications. But if you're looking at the experts and uh, some, some papers recently coming from Canada by Dr. Tyrell David and so on, so if you Looking at the world experts on ROS procedure, it can be done very, very well. The advantages are hemodynamic profile is excellent, no need for anticoagulation. The downside is the complexity of the operation, and it has to be a center of excellence. And I'm even, even more concerned about the complexity of the reoperation, because many of these patients will need to be reoperated either because of the pulmonic or the aortic valve. So uh, I think it's a good choice, no question about that. But if you understand the limitation of this option. Dr. Alkaya, you know, that was super helpful to review kind of all of our options at this point. And I think it is really important that anticoagulation at this point is something that is really a shared decision that needs to occur between the patient and the physician. And we'll be including 
another episode later on about anticoagulation with Dr. Katie Berlarker, kind of emphasizing a lot of these discussions and patient preference at that point. Great discussion so far, and thank you for all the great points, Dr. Kayam. I'd like to bring it back to our patient. Like you said earlier, when a patient presents with asymptomatic, you know, severe lesions, you have to really make sure that they have good functional capacity and remain asymptomatic with higher level of activity. She, over time, over the years, had been decreasing her physical activity and she had become more sedentary. And she used to play sports, but has not done any kind of exertional physical activity over the past couple of years. So she did have a stress test and did not do well with the stress test. Ultimately, she elected to undergo a balloon valvuloplasty prior to conception. And she was planning to potentially get a surgical repair with a mechanical valve after pregnancy. So Dr. Akayam, how would you manage her now during pregnancy after she's had a balloon valvuloplasty? Would you monitor her more frequently with echoes or other imaging modalities? Do you have any information about the results of the valvuloplasty? So we'll assume that the valvuloplasty was successful and she had reduction in her gradient from the 40s as she was before to the 20s. I mean, first of all, it's nice to hear that the procedure was successful and without any complications. And now this patient has mild aortic stenosis, right? And if I said that I was almost confident that I could have allowed her to become pregnant and follow her safely without an intervention, now I feel even more comfortable, right? So uh, you have to understand that aortic stenosis is really tolerated well during pregnancy. And the patients who are likely to become symptomatic and run into problems are really the patients with severe aortic stenosis. Even patients with severe aortic stenosis are going to do much better than the patient with severe mitral stenosis. So now you have a patient with aortic stenosis who is likely to do well. And the only risk is that the patient is going to become symptomatic I mean, for two reasons. One is that you have risk stenosis of this after the valvuloplasty. And the second is that the patient is go, is, will develop symptoms related to the pregnancy and not to the aortic stenosis. And, you know, this is one of the most significant risks that the patient is going to confuse the physician who is going to make the wrong decisions. So here you have to be able to differentiate between symptoms related to hemodynamic deterioration versus symptoms related to the discomfort of uh, pregnancy. And how do we differentiate between the two? So you do an echocardiogram. It's mostly actually for assessment of the pulmonary pressure, not so much really the gradient across the valve. So that's one tool to see if the patient pulmonary pressure, which really reflects our left atrial pressure, right, is going to go up. And we are using obsessively BNP. We will have BNP, and I forgot to basically mention that the before the pregnancy, we're going to establish the baseline BNP. So that will allow me to differentiate between, you know, complaints related to hemodynamic deterioration and just uh, related to pregnancy. So we will follow the BNP, especially if the patient is complaining of any symptoms. In terms of obsessively doing echoes, no. The patients become symptomatic, yes. I'm not going to be impressed with an increasing gradient, which is by definition is going to be the case because of the increase in cardiac output, usually without really any consequences. And then, you know, if I am ready to make a decision, if I'm concerned about the patient, and I say, I'm going to deliver early, I'm going to do a C-section. I'm going to do in my institution a hemodynamic monitoring to make sure that I'm not wrong. And I'm not all of the sudden say the patient needs to be delivered at 37 weeks or 36 weeks just because of the fact that I'm uncomfortable with the symptoms. So I think that's really very important because many, many of these women are getting wrong advice based on the anxiety of the physician. So we need to be able to get as much as information as possible before we make decisions. Thank you, Dr. Elkayam. And just following up on what you said about mitral stenosis versus aortic stenosis and how mitral stenosis is much more poorly tolerated than aortic stenosis, is that because the pulmonary pressures are less forgiving and, you know, small changes in wedge pressure could create more symptoms and, and pulmonary edema versus in aortic stenosis, the left ventricle can accommodate, particularly in a lot of these patients who have 
robust left ventricular responses to the higher need. And so they'll be able to provide adequate systemic pressure. Yeah. One of the important uh, really issues that, that anybody who is involved in hemodynamics understand that the risk is the left atrial pressure and the wedge pressure. It's not the cardiac output. So the patient with aortic stenosis usually don't develop pulmonary hypertension. No, they'll develop maybe dizziness and decrease in exercise tolerance, but they are not likely to go into pulmonary edema. The patient with mitral stenosis, because of the increase in volume and also the increase in heart rate, which decreases diastolic filling time, they are more likely to develop actually left atrial hypertension and pulmonary hypertension and complications. So yes, the, uh, the lack of tolerance of the volume and the, uh, the heart failure are critical for mitral stenosis. And most patients uh, with mitral stenosis, we're going to talk about a patient with mitral stenosis later. So let me leave that in my comments for the uh, second patient then. Okay, excellent. Thanks for clarifying that important point. So on similar lines, and you kind of mentioned this before, but in, with regards to repeating echoes during pregnancy, the higher cardiac output is, uh, that's associated with pregnancy, particularly during the second trimester, would result in increased gradients across the aortic valve. This might fool us into thinking that the aortic stenosis is worsening. And Dr. Alkayim, obviously you encounter this problem. What do you do about that? And how do you tease out patients that actually are having worsening gradients from actual progression of stenosis? Well, you know, if you don't really have information about the baseline echo in this patient, then you have to go by what you have. Remember, the gradient is going to be determined by the flow and by the valve area. So the valve area is going to remain the same. So if this patient valve area was 0.9, the gradient may go up. But if you're going to do an echo, you should be able to calculate the valve area, which is going to be the same. There were two studies that I'm familiar with, one by Dr. Silversides from Canada that actually showed this increase in gradient, which was relatively mild. More recently was a paper from Iran that demonstrated this increase in gradient. I think they went from 30 to 50 during the second trimester. And remember, the stroke volume initially goes up. And then at the end of the pregnancy, because of the effect of the fetus on the IVC, then the stroke volume does not change and maybe even decrease. So they showed that initially they had this increase in the second trimester of the gradient, and then the gradient actually declined, not to baseline, but nevertheless not as high uh, as in the mid-trimester, and they did not really find any clinical consequence to this increase in gradient. Thanks, Arbel Kayam. You know, we're really excited that we'll also be learning from Dr. Silverstein as part of this discussion when it comes to pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy. But this has been a great discussion. We've talked about preconception counseling, the different choices of heart valve interventions in women of childbearing age, as well as monitoring over the course of pregnancy itself. So if our patient were to become symptomatic during pregnancy, how would you manage symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in that context? You know, unfortunately, aortic stenosis cannot be really effectively treated with medications, right? It's not like mitral stenosis. So all we can do is give the patient some diuretics, and it's usually not going to be very effective. But I cannot emphasize it enough that you need to make sure that the symptoms and the hemodynamics correlate, that you're not going to jump and do a valvuloplasty or tower in a patient who really does not need that. And patients with aortic stenosis do tolerate aortic stenosis. So if you really come to the conclusion that absolutely the patient is very symptomatic and it is because of the aortic stenosis, then we mentioned the options of valvuloplasty, which is going to be a very good option. It will allow you to decrease as happened in this patient. If you do it in mid-pregnancy, then it will allow you to bring the patient safely to term. And that's the goal. Going back to her patient, she underwent a successful BAV prior to conception. She was able to get pregnant and she is now in her third trimester and doing well. We are asked by her our OB colleagues to comment on whether vaginal delivery or cesarean section would be the appropriate mode of delivery. Dr. Akayam, what would you advise for our patient and for which cardiac patients would you recommend C-section as an initial strategy? 
So I think that the issue of delivery is an important issue that we all now work as a multidisciplinary team. We work very closely with the maternal fetal medicine expert and also with the anesthesiologist and make the decisions. In general, and it's a very, I think, important rule, most patients with valvular disease can, de- can be delivered vaginally. So really a small fraction of the patient have cardiac indications for a C-section. I'm talking about really pulmonary edema, heart failure that cannot be controlled. And so if you uh, you mentioned Dr. Silverside, and they published a paper a long time ago in a group of patients with aortic stenosis, then the rate of C-section was about 25%, but the cardiac indications in only 1%. So I think that 1% or 2% of patients with valvular disease will need to have a C-section because of cardiac indication, otherwise vaginal delivery. The second question is the timing. So a patient like this, I would just let the patient go all the way to have spontaneous delivery. If you have a patient that you're more concerned about symptoms and so on, then we will decide on the timing of surgery. Usually induced delivery, I mean, whenever we think it's not safe to continue the pregnancy. Usually we would like to be at least 37 weeks. You know, I would like to see it even even later. So again, I mean, vaginal delivery in the majority of the cases. And I say that because if you're looking at the ROPAC registry, then you see that 50%, 5-0 of patients similar to the patient that you have had actually C-section delivery, indicating that physicians really, you know, so uncomfortable with this patient population and have the misconception that the C-section is safer than vaginal delivery. Thank you so much for your help with Ms. M. She ultimately delivered a healthy baby boy via vaginal delivery, and she will follow up in clinic with a plan of possible surgical aortic valve replacement at a later date. Now, we're going to see our second patient, and at this time, we're going to the inpatient consult service. Getting an inpatient OB consult always gives us a lot of anxiety, so we could really use your help on this case, Dr. Akayam. Ms. Z is a 28-year-old G2P1 who is admitted at 23 weeks of gestation with significant dystonic exertion. She was born and raised in Kenya, and she moved to the United States at the age of 19. She had a prior uncomplicated pregnancy at the age of 24. This pregnancy, though, has been a little bit different for her, and she has been experiencing dystonic exertion now affecting her daily activities. She was seen in OB clinic and admitted directly to the hospital due to a concern for heart failure. Her echocardiogram shows severe mitral stenosis with a mitral valve area of 1.12 centimeters square, a mean gradient of 17 millimeters of mercury at a heart rate of 83. Her EF is 60% and her RVSP is estimated at 62 millimeters of mercury. Now, what are your thoughts on our patient with severe symptomatic mitral stenosis at 23 weeks of gestation? And would her management be different if she was not pregnant? All right. So here, I think we have a pretty good indication that this patient has severe mitostenosis, as indicated by the valve area. But I am even more impressed with the mean grade in the cause the valve of 17 millimeter of mercury and the pulmonary hypertension that she has. So there's no question that this is severe mitostenosis and the symptoms are related. The, um, I mean, the heart rate is 83. And the heart rate is usually critical. So when you see an echo report and the echo report says that the gradient across the valve is such and such, then you always want to know what is the heart rate, right? Because the heart rate is critical. And reducing the heart rate is the first thing that we do in patients with mitostenosis. So using better blockers and reducing the heart rate. I mean, she is not really tachycardic. So the rule here for gain is somewhat limited, but I would definitely like to see the heart rate getting down to 70, 65, and you're probably going to see a significant reduction in the gradient and improvement of the symptoms. The one comment about diuretics in a patient with mitostenosis we use it if the beta blockers are not sufficient. But remember, if we're going to actually reduce the blood volume by raising the patient, the left ventricle is already underfilled. So if we're going to decrease actually the stroke volume by decreasing blood volume, then the response is going to be tachycardia. 
And so you're sort of, you know, creating a vicious cycle here. So I usually don't like to start diuretics, you know, initially. Really, the better blockers is the first drug of choice. Another thing that it's important to uh, understand that because of the increase in sympathetic activity in pregnancy, the effect of better blockers, in order to achieve the heart rate control that you want to achieve, you need to use a higher dose of beta blockers. And oftentimes people will give 25 milligram of metoprolol, BID, it's not going to do. We published paper years ago uh, looking at the same dose of atenolol during pregnancy and after the delivery. We also measured the blood level of atenolol and we showed a significant reduction in the heart rate after the delivery with the same dose and the same blood level. So it's important to understand that you really want to see the heart rate going down and not just prescribe a beta blocker in the dose that we used to use in some other indications. So that will be my first way of trying to improve the situation here. And if the patient does not respond, then obviously valvuloplasty, she will be, we, we haven't heard about how does the valve look like and if this is a, a good valve for valvuloplasty. But I would imagine that in most cases, valvuloplasty is a good option unless the patient has mitorigoge. And by the way, in the Ropakin study, a sizable number of the patients with mitostenosis had also mitorigogitation. So some of the patients are not good candidates for valvuloplasty, but if the patient is a good candidate on meeting the, the usual criteria for valvuloplasty, then valvuloplasty is going to be an excellent way to improve the situation here. Great points. Because of the risk associated with interventions during pregnancy, medical management is always the first step in taking care of these pregnant patients. However, for some patients, this may not be enough. Beta blockers are first line, and as you said, adding diuretics may help if the patient continues to be symptomatic. But it is a balance between you know, managing symptoms and avoiding utero placenta insufficiency, which can happen at very high doses of beta blocker and diuretics. Patients who remain symptomatic after initiation of medical therapy have higher risk of morbidity and mortality during pregnancy. Thanks for that recap, Lori. So, Dr. Alkem, I wonder, when do you think about moving on from just medical therapy to a valvular intervention? I'd imagine that there is as much art here as science. And let's say for our patient, her valve leaflets are thin and pliable without much calcifications. The commissures aren't fused. The subvalvular apparatus isn't thickened and scarred. And there's no significant mitral regurgitation. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, she uh, presented at uh, 23 weeks. So we have a long way to go. And with this severity of the stenosis and the presentation, I, I would imagine that she would be a candidate for valvuloplasty probably sooner than later. I usually would use something like 50 milligram of metoprolol tartrate three times a day. So every eight hours. You know, once I get to higher doses, for the reason that you mentioned, not so much maybe the decrease in cardiac output, but maybe the effect on the size of the baby, maybe, you know, you're using higher doses. And so I become a little bit uncomfortable. And then it's time for valvuloplasty, especially if the patient is a good candidate for valvuloplasty. And the results of valvuloplasty are, are good. You know, Dr. Hamid, that used to be a fellow with us. Dr. Hamid is, a, is an interesting individual. She is both a cardiologist and a an obstetrician. She was a medical resident with us, and she did a very, very nice uh, study on valvular disease with me. And then she had fellowship in cardiology for two years, and I got her into the fellowship because she was such a great resident. And then she came to me to tell me, you know, actually, I want to be an obstetrician after two years. And so I got her into the OB. And now she is very educated. She's both certified in both. And she's at the University of Irvine doing a great job. And she put together this review article about over 500 patients who underwent valvuloplasty during pregnancy with excellent results, valvular 0.9 to, to 2. The potential risk, obviously, is mitorigogitation, severe enough for the patient to require emergent surgery. And that's a concern. It happened only in 1.6% of the patients. The procedure was successful in the majority of the patient, mortality 0.2%. 
So it's safe and effective during pregnancy. But again, I mean, that should not be your first valvuloplasty. You know, it should be done by somebody who's, who's really very familiar with valvuloplasty, try to minimize the effect of radiation and try to do it fast and use echo. Yeah, and Dr. Al-Khaim will actually be featuring Dr. Afshan Hamid in one of our episodes on interdisciplinary care. So yeah, we're very excited to, to record that episode with her. I find it fascinating that we admit patients all the time with severe aortic stenosis and expedite hybrid workup, for example. But when it comes to pregnant patients, uh, we hesitate a lot about moving from medications to interventions. And sometimes patients go months with symptoms. You know, like this patient presented early in her second trimester and she has a few months to go before delivery. And despite knowing that your cardiacopolis is only going to increase, the plasma volume will increase, the heart rate may continue to increase, we hesitate a lot about moving forward to intervention. I think most people are just not comfortable with procedures during pregnancy as it is regarded as higher risk of radiation contrast. And as you said, the little chance that one patient may require open heart surgery if she becomes unstable with the percutaneous procedure. Yes, so I can definitely see why many would hesitate to take care of pregnancy patients. Dr. Alkayam, can you talk to us about the risk of valvuloplasty and valve surgery in pregnant patients and the timing of the procedure to minimize the risk both to the mother and the baby? Yeah, so obviously you don't want to do it too early because of the risk of radiation to the baby, but you also don't want to do it too late. And Dr. Mera, that works with me for many, many years, who is our intervention cardiologist who has done most of the valvuloplasties, is telling me that during the third trimester, where you have really a pressure on the IVC, he found it more difficult to manipulate the catheter and do the valvuloplasty. So that's a technical, actually, point. So if the patient is going to have valvuloplasty, there's no point to really try to push it to the point that they're becoming even more symptomatic and develop pulmonary edema. So usually the end of the second trimester, the patient, just like this patient, they present with the symptoms. And so after a trial of uh, medical therapy, uh, then we will do the valvuloplasty. You know, after 20 weeks, and I and actually I saw that in, in the text that you sent me about the 26 weeks and the concern about uh, needing to deliver the baby and make sure to prevent extreme prematurity. It's a good point, although it's usually not happening. So it is a theoretical concern more than a practical concern. So I would say any time after 20, 22 weeks, it's an okay time to do the valvuloplasty. Great. Based on the data that we have, it seems like valvuloplasty is relatively safe in this patient population. And like you mentioned earlier, outcomes are really good and are definitely better for patients who have severe symptoms without valvular intervention. Maternal mortality for severe mitral stenosis during pregnancy can be as high as 3% from a recent meta-analysis that was published at ACC. And for patients who undergo valvuloplasty, this can be reduced as low as 0.2% which is more than 10 times lower. So it's definitely a procedure that has been proven to be safe and very effective in these patient populations. So in the case of Ms. Z, because of her persistent symptom, she underwent a successful percutaneous balloon mitral commissurotomy at 28 weeks of gestation. So thankfully, Ms. Z was successfully managed medically throughout her pregnancy and delivered a healthy baby girl via vaginal delivery at 39 weeks of gestation. So what advice do you give for patients like her who may desire additional future pregnancies? Well, I think she, she should not make the same mistake that she actually made this time, right? She had a normal delivery four years ago, and now she comes and she's fairly sick and she's 23 weeks. So I think it's really important for her to be followed. It's important for her if she would like to have another pregnancy to have a preconceptual evaluation to make sure that it's safe. You know, valvuloplasty is a great procedure, but stenosis after valvuloplasty definitely occurs. And so she needs to have the usual evaluation before pregnancy and if needed, an intervention again. Thank you for helping us manage these patients. I'm sorry, but we'll just have one last 5 p.m. council that we would love to discuss before we go. This is a 32-year-old woman with no past medical history who is 37 weeks pregnant. She presented to the hospital due to worsening shortness of breath. In the emergency room, she is found to be hypoxic with an oxygen saturation of 90%. She is mildly to keep Nick 
with a heart rate of 105 beats per minute, and she is novotensive. Her chest X-ray and clinical findings are concerning for volume overload and pulmonary edema. Her OB team ordered an echo, which showed a mildly dilated left atrium with an ejection fraction of 65% and match of a prolapse with severe mitral regurgitation. She has never had a prior echo, so we don't know much about the chronicity of her mitral regurgitation. We spoke a little bit about mitral regurgitation through systematic lesions earlier, but do you mind sharing how you would approach this patient? Yeah, okay. So the nice thing about patients with valvular disease is that they usually give you some warnings. And going back to the WHO classification and the CARPREG, one of the criticisms that I've always had is that they're talking about events and complications, but they don't really separate between predictable or complications which develop slowly that allow you to treat. And so the patient presents acutely, obviously it's much more difficult to deal with them. Whether this is chronic or acute, you know, the fact that the left atrium is enlarged would maybe indicate to me that it's not acute. At the same time, the presentation of pulmonary edema, severe hypoxemia, you know, that's, uh, that sounds to me fairly acute. And so she has a mitral valve prolapse. That means she has a myxomatose valve. And one of the risks of myxomatose valves in pregnancy is a ruptured cordae. So the question is, did she actually rupture cordae? And if she did, then the, uh, the urgency uh, is much higher. And also the indication for surgery is going to be different and maybe more urgent. So all of these things, you know, are something that need to be taken into account. The first thing, she needs to be hemodynamically stabilized. And in our institution, we will put a swung on scatter and do hemodynamic evaluation and treat the patient aggressively with vasodilators and possibly with intraortic balloon pump to stabilize her. If we can stabilize her quickly, then we have some more time and we can make decisions. In that case, I would like to do a TE to really get a little bit more information about the nature of this mitral regurgitation and what exactly is happening. In terms of when to deliver her and how, if she does not have a ruptured cordae and she can be stabilized to the point that I will even feel comfortable inducing her and deliver her vaginally, I will do that. If I feel that she is not really amenable to stabilization, then she would be a candidate for an early C-section. Well, I think that concludes our last case. Thank you so much, Dr. Elkayim. Do you have any words of wisdom that you would like to share with us and our listeners? Yeah, no, I think one of the most important things to remember is that the majority of women with heart disease can become pregnant. I mean, when I say can become pregnant, I mean that we would say to them, you can become pregnant, right? Because we can manage most of these conditions, even patients with relatively complicated procedures. And you refer to the WHO classification, so there are a small number of patients who are sort of class four who should be advised against pregnancy. And that will include patients with severe pulmonary hypertension, you know, Eisenmenger syndrome, patients with dilated aorta, with Marfan, and so on and so forth. So there's a small number of patients that should not become pregnant, but the rest of the patient can be managed. You know, oftentimes it will make us nervous and these patients are going to become pregnant even against medical advice. And I can tell you when this is the case, even with patients with pulmonary hypertension today, we can manage most of this patient. The key is to assess the patient either before pregnancy or early during pregnancy because late assessment has been a predictor of, uh, of poor outcome. And then understand the expected hemodynamic changes during pregnancy and how this will affect your individual patient. So it's not necessarily the classification. It is your individual patients who may have tricuspid regurgitation, but because of a failing right ventricle, it is a completely different ball game, right? In somebody who has an isolated tricuspid regurgitation, just as an example. And then follow the patient very, very carefully. And I think that, that BNP has been a great tool for us. It's really very useful. We're using it throughout the pregnancy and then stabilizing the patient before the delivery 
Our hemodynamic evaluation is very, very important. And, and, and really the most important thing that I see now around the country, the forming a multidisciplinary team, which really works very well together. And along the way, are able to make the right decision during the pregnancy, labor, and delivery. And these are mostly really the maternal fetal medicine, anesthesiology, and cardiology. And nowadays, we oftentimes need the help of somebody who really understands a heart failure and hemodynamics. If we are non-invasive cardiologists, we may want to, you know, to get some help, electrophysiology, and so on and so forth. So we need to make sure that we have a team of people that, that understand the situation and can make the right decision. Because most of the things that I see that really bothers me are the wrong decision being made because of lack of knowledge and high level of anxiety. Thank you so much, Dr. Al-Qayyim. And that really is very encouraging for us and our patients and also just appreciating that the multidisciplinary team is ever growing. And when you need somebody's expertise, reach out, connect and build a coalition to support and advocate for your patient to get them the outcome that they and we all want for them. So thank you for that. And finally, Dr. Al-Qayyim, I'll ask you this, my favorite question on this podcast. What makes your heart flutter about cardiobstetrics? So, you know, I mean, as I told you, we we started our program in 1981. And Jay Somerville in England and maybe Carol Walls in the Mayo Clinic, very few of us really were interested in taking care of a pregnant patient. So it's really satisfying for me to see in the Congress that we had on cardiac problems in pregnancy that you see 500 people from around the world are interested in cardioobstetrics. And to see now... You know, a lot of programs around the country and the world of cardioobstetrics and, and people devote their actually at least part of their career to cardioobstetrics is extremely satisfying to me. So, um, yeah, you know, the, the, really the bottom line is to try to provide patients, women and their babies, the best care that we can provide. Well said, Dr. Elkayam. Well, thank you both so much, Lori and Dr. Elkayam, for joining us today and teaching us all about the management of valvular heart disease in pregnancy. It has truly been a pleasure. You have just taught us so much and it has been so amazing. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardioobstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah and brought to you in collaboration with WomenHeart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to cardio nerds. With our partner, WomenHeart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is WomenHeart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, each year I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, 
most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, The role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to CardioB, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series.